The Cannabis Conversation. A European perspective on the emerging legal cannabis industry. Welcome to the Cannabis Conversation with Anuj Desai, where I explore the new legal cannabis industry by speaking to the professionals that are helping to shape it. Today's show is a great topic. It's on cannabis and the media, the rather excellently named Mike Power. Mike's a journalist who has written extensively about drugs over the years and has most notably written for The Guardian and Vice on not just cannabis, but other drugs too. As we've seen in the last few years with Brexit and Trump and fake news in general, how stories come out in the media very much controls how we perceive things. And so a changing in that narrative can have quite a dramatic effect. And I think that's definitely contributed in some way to the changing public perception of cannabis in that it's certainly more favourably looked at right now. It's not across the board but certainly around medical and CBD. So I'm talking to Mike today a bit about how that narrative has changed. Anyway, let's get cracking. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so today's show is about cannabis in the media. I've got, as my guest, Mike Power, who's an award-winning journalist. He mainly writes about drugs and tech, so I feel he's a good person to speak to about how the media narrative has changed in relation to cannabis. So welcome, Mike. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Cheers. So, look, I'm kind of going to be asking you questions, both from your perspective as a media observer, but also as a as a journalist. Let's talk about a bit of history. What what was traditionally the the press coverage of cannabis like up until a few years ago, and what's changed? I think the kind of the phrase that most typifies British media coverage of cannabis in the last sort of twenty years would be "killer skunk." You know, the kind of the, the kind of the skunk paranoia, the skunk terror where People would speak about cannabis in this kind of fearful way, in a reefer madness way, in a really kind of daily mail way. Remember that I think there was an organization called Cannabis Skunk Sense. It kind of, when you actually say that name out loud, now it kind of sounds like a Chris Morris skit, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and it was traditionally uh, a very fearful, judgmental, um, kind of critical and ignorant, uh, actually, perspective on, on cannabis, on, on all drugs, really. The British media is basically terrified of all drugs, mm-hmm. um, for reasons we'll probably go into uh, in more depth soon. So, yeah, there was kind of, you know, I think the key change that we've had is that we've gone from killer skunk or psychosis skunk or any other, you know, negative word associated with skunk that you can imagine to suddenly the same plant, the same, the same flower is actually now a medicine. It's now cure a skunk. You know, the THC levels are exactly the same in Bedrocan, the Dutch cannabis, which is being sold in the UK now as medicine, as high THC skunk, so-called, that was, you know, so suddenly and supposedly making people psychotic for many years. So, yeah, I think that the main kind of, the main attitude towards cannabis and all drugs in the British media has been one of fear, ignorance, prejudice, and moral panic, mm. Really. And thankfully that's changed. It's changing. It's, you know, it's a dynamic system. These things are going to be in flux for a few years. But at the minute, it seems like, um, we have a slightly more rational perspective in the ascendance. Thankfully, that seems to be the way things look to me right now. That's, yeah, loads of interesting stuff there. I think we've talked about it a bit before. There's, we live in a world of kind of polar opposites and things are either good or bad and people rarely look at it in the shades of grey. Um, which is, which is hopefully what's happening now, because to simplify it to good or bad with cannabis, when there's so many active components in it that could do all these things that we don't actually know about, is is a vast oversimplification, I think. So 
Absolutely. I think that black and white thing is quite funny because I think very often within cannabis activism, you also have that same black and white thinking. You have this very reductive thinking where people believe, you know, cannabis can't possibly be dangerous because it's only a plant. And it's like, well, you know, I can name you 500 plants that will kill you stone dead straight away. So to me, I think that that kind of black and white thinking is something that we need to, we need to challenge. But I think ironically, sometimes cannabis can make people slightly monomanic make them just think that cannabis is the only thing worth arguing for, thinking about talking. I mean, I, I know people who have based their political voting choices simply on a party's cannabis policy. And that to me seems really short-sighted. There's so many more important things than cannabis. However, you know, I do think that drug policy is an area that really offers a, a great deal of opportunity for positive social change mm. from everything. I mean, drugs Drugs are really kind of intersectional, to use the, you know, the, the phrase du jour. The, the drugs cover geopolitics. They cover everything from economics to criminality to you know government policy to everything. There's so many different elements from personal and individual freedom and agency in, in, in drug use, all the way down to you know biology and chemistry and neurochemistry. So there's a, there's a huge area of kind of academic study which I, th- I think is really ripe, really ripe for exploration in the next few years. Once we get our heads around the fact that cannabis isn't going to kill you. you yeah, I, and it's certainly something we want to promote on the show is is engaging with the issues, and it's not blanket. This is the panacea for everything. Yeah. It's look, there is it's not going to be right for everyone. There are some things that don't work quite well. Mm. Let's acknowledge them because if you pretend they don't exist, then you're kind of leading yourself down a totally. blind alley. I mean, what's really made me laugh lately has been the kind of the claims made for, for CBD, you know, and it's a, you know, it's a wonderful anti-inflammatory, it's a wonderful drug for many things that we don't know yet, but some of the illnesses that people think it can kind of cure or that it can actually help with, it's it's a fiction and it's it's a new snake oil in some mm, ways, you know, it's yes, a definitely. huge new sort of snake oil market. And I think that, you know, we, we, we need some new definitions around cannabis, we need some new definitions around the drugs that, you know, treat people as adults and treat people as, yeah, let's say, consumers. And we need to have a rational drug policy that treats people as intelligent, rational people rather than deviants, which has been the way the drug policy always has been. Mm. Drug users have always been othered. They've always been marginalised. And I think that that's not appropriate when you consider the ubiquity of drug use. You know, everyone in one way or another, whether, you know, we can talk about tea and coffee and the rest of it. But, you know, so many people have either used illegal drugs in their life or have uh, or are using them in their lives without having a hugely terrible influence on their life. Um, that's not to argue for blanket regulate, blanket deregulation of everything, but I just think we need to have, be, be honest and have a truthful conversation about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, and acknowledge the reality. I think, I think uh, hopefully through the show that we're, we're exploring the idea of how politicised drugs have been, and particularly in relation to cannabis, but that would be a, a show for another day. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I, I think you highlight really well the kind of you know, male telegraph type view on drugs. What do, what do you think has changed? I think people will naturally gravitate towards the Billy Caldwell case, but but clearly things were happening before then, I think, in terms of the changing narrative. Do you, do you sure think? Thing, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's cash money, man. Every time it's going to win, you know, it's going to win every argument in a, in a capitalist economy, you know, without wanting to come at this with too much heavy Marxist uh, sort of theory. <laughs> you know, capital needs return. Capital needs return. And this is a new product class. This is product class, which is a recreational relaxant. It's recreational stimulant. It's a wellness product. It's a health product. It's a lifestyle product. These are hugely profitable experiential markets. Capital uh, knows that. Mm. Capital wants a slice of that. 
And however we get there, whether it's through lobbying, whether it's through observation of zero negative effects for most people from cannabis use, or whether it's through the medicinal arguments, which is so kind of key to the changing perspective of cannabis in, in the world and internationally. Marijuana is legal for adults over the age of 21 in 10 US states. This is the home of prohibition. This is the place that told us we couldn't smoke cannabis mm. and that it would send us all mad. And then medical marijuana is legal in 33 states, is it, in the US? I think something like that. Yeah, definitely over 30. So the majority of the US can access medical marijuana. And I think that those arguments are the ones that have won it over. That is what that is what changed it. And that's been going on for, you know, for over a decade, if you look at the Californian case. Yeah, internationally, we've had huge moves towards the dismantling of these outdated regulations. Let's not forget that these rules... I mean, how old are they now? How old are the international cannabis regulations? 70, 70 odd years, I think. And it hasn't done anything to reduce consumption or availability or increase the price of it. In fact, all of those metrics have gone the opposite direction than exactly. they should have done. Yeah. So it hasn't worked demonstrably. And we're thinking of something new. And, it, you know, just at the time that the capital does need a nice new return. But if you, if you think about it from the media angle, I mean, yeah, look, I'm, sure. <laughs> I frequently have this argument with friends. Who sets the agenda? Is it is it the media or is it giving the people what they want? I'm not convinced that it's... It's probably something in the middle, isn't it, I think? Do you know, I have a very sort of deconstructive or deconstructive view of the media and news. And I think this is just a, a kind of consequence of my, my experience in the industry. And it's a, media narratives are constructed narratives. You know, news isn't always news. And I think... If we look outside the frame of the page or the screen and we question the power relations between the author and the reader, the origins of those narratives emerges. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, who is saying this and why are they saying it? Why are they saying it now? And seeing some of the cannabis campaigning in the last few years, it's been a fascinating eye-opener to me to see the confluence of lobbying power, political expertise, funding, let's, let's, be, let's be frank, funding is always required. And those things change the media narrative. You know, to, to have to have a well-planned public relations um, situationist intervention, which is essentially what we had in the Billy Caldwell case mm. with with the activist team that was behind Billy Caldwell. The case there was so urgent, and the case there was so undeniable and so well managed that it was a masterclass in political lobbying and in radical new campaigning. And the Billy Caldwell case is what ultimately took cannabis over the line in the UK mm. as, a, as a medicine. There's still an awfully long way to go, and it's uh, in many ways hugely disappointing, I think, for many people who, who need this medicine today. But we are one step closer to that happening. Yeah. How that happens, I think now is the time for us to stop and debate how that works. But that really, that's the most recent change in, in, in British kind of, in British culture through that media. And that entire media narrative, it was, it was planned, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. entirely planned. And the, the kind of the salience and the art of story placing and the kind of the news mechanics, people would be shocked if they knew how the news ended up on the front page and on the television. You yeah. know, they, if people understood news diaries and if they understood agendas and lobbying and if they understood the links between, between corporations and some newspapers, they'd be shocked. Mm. Absolutely shocked. So it's, I mean, yeah, look, it's, it's highly strategic and incredibly well executed and. A fair bit of bravery on the part of Charlotte Caldwell as well in terms of how it was, um, how it kind of came to light, etc. Mm. So in effect, it's, you know, it's, is it, is it the kind of corporate paymasters that are, are leaning on the papers to say, let's be a bit more favorable, or seeing the kind of potential capital return? I, I don't think it's quite as direct as that. And I don't think it's quite as kind of uh, overt as that. But I think that what you have is a kind of a cultural atmosphere that's created through, uh, through kind of corporate opportunity. Mm. And you have a news agenda that is set 
ultimately by public relations companies at times or mm. by public relations activists. And from that, I mean, news is a, a kind of a self-cannibalizing industry. You know, when I first got into journalism, I was really shocked. I, I thought the journalists went out and got stories every day and went out and spoke to people and reported. And to see that, you know, the majority, especially in the online era, the majority of content is repurposed. It's picked up from somewhere. You know, the Today program used to set the agenda. The Today program now follows the agenda of whatever's in the Daily Mail. Mm. And that that's... You know, all journalists basically, they, they, they kind of operate in this slightly fearful environment where they, they don't want to go first on a story, but they don't want to be last, mm. you know? So they're always kind of looking to catch the zeitgeist um, rather than kind of set the zeitgeist. Mm. And so when a big story breaks through, like the, you know, the legalization of medicinal cannabis, which, you know, activists that I've known have been campaigning for for 30 years, when that happened, that was obviously a shift and you know, when you have a child that needs medicine and has it confiscated by British border guards, that's untenable. You can't continue with that as a public policy. You can't have a child dying on the Home Minister's watch. Mm. You know, Sajid Javid would not have that child die. He'd have a child die overseas in, you know, in a refugee camp. He'd, he'd gamble that life quite happily with no problem whatsoever because, you know, he's uh, looking to be the leader of the Tory party. So, you know, I'm not actually ascribing any great, um, you know, humanitarian qualities to the man, but he did, he took a political, he made the political judgment in that case and realised that he had to do something. And so he did. A previous show, we had Alex Fraser, who was quite one of the guys that set up the United Patients Alliance, which is an activist group for medicinal patients. And he said that they'd, he's he's a Crohn sufferer and there were a fair few adults involved in the organisation who had various ailments and he said it was quite hard to cut through. But like it's been in the US and in Australia, if you have a sick child, that is actually what really grabs people's attention. It really is. And I think that now we're through that kind of, now we're through that stage in post, I think it's time now to, to have a more widely compassionate view on this. I mean, it's ridiculous that people are having to pay £700 an ounce for cannabis, which is being sold in Holland for €5 Euros a gram. Yeah, so that's £130 an ounce, £120 an ounce. So we're paying a fivefold premium on it because the British government can't actually grant enough licences and they can't, you know, manage the import of a essentially harmless, benign flower. It's, it's ludicrous. But I think if we, if we limit ourselves, if we limit our compassion and our campaigning just to children and to sick children, they're a very important constituency. But equally, why should why should people in agonising pain in the end of life care in palliative care be denied a drug that either relieves their pain or relieves their symptoms, even if they just have symptomatic temporary relief mm-hmm. of cancer pain of the various agonies of chemotherapy why are we denying the people these people these things why are we still busting small medicinal grows in this country of someone growing one plant or three plants why is that happening it's 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 unjustifiable to me so to me the, the the sick children sort of sector is extremely important but to me it's a question of fairness across the board you know why should why should people who are vomiting from chemotherapy i mean imagine it suffering um with cancer and having daily chemotherapy and you're denied a plant that would, if you were to just vaporize a couple of milligrams of it, stop you vomiting mm. and make you eat and make you hungry and have people to wait on and actually possibly age your recovery. And you know, people with dementia, I read an amazing study on dementia just recently about one of the lines and it was superb. It said that the nurses in this uh, hospital in Geneva noticed the people they've been treating with a small quantity of THC and CBD uh, were smiling more. And as a metric, that to me is valid. I don't need the double blind placebo population <laughs> scale test of a plant's efficacy or not. It's yeah. like, is it harmful? No. Does it make them smile? Yes. Are they better than they were yesterday? Give it to them. Yeah. There's no, there's no justification. There's no argument for it. It's like denying people antibiotics or aspirin. Yeah. 
And, you know, equally in, in, the, in the pharmaceutical drugs that people are being prescribed, often you're, you're prescribed a section of drugs to deal with the side effects from your original condition. So Absolutely. it's not like we aren't already doing this in a different way. I mean, we're prescribing opiates at a higher level than we ever have. We're prescribing drugs like pregabalin. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I suffered a, a little while back a terrible bout of sciatica and I was prescribed pregabalin. And it was one of the worst experiences of my life. It made me forgetful. It made me anxious. Coming off, it was awful. And I was on it for a couple of months as I was out of work for a couple of months at the time. And to be honest, cannabis wouldn't have been any use to me um, and I didn't want it. But the fact that these, the drugs such as these are being dished out in the thousands. I mean, if you, if you just look at, you know, a condition such as insomnia, yeah, it's like if someone has insomnia and you give them a strong indica cannabis to smoke or to vaporize or to eat an oil of, they will sleep that <laughs> night, yeah? And they will sleep the next night and they'll sleep every night successively after that. If you give them Zoplicon or Diazepam, it'll stop working after a bit and they'll become dependent on it and they need a higher dose. And then they've got the problems of withdrawal, which can possibly kill you in the case of benzodiazepines. So why are we not prescribing cannabis as an insomnia remedy? It's better and safer and more effective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of applications on there. One of the things, just, just step back a bit. One of the things you talked about and, uh, you know, is, is kind of pin up for this area is, is the Billy Caldwell case. Um, how close were you to that? Cause you obviously covered it for the Guardian, but generally around it. And I think you've alluded to how. Yeah, well, the, the people behind uh, the Billy Caldwell case were originally behind the think tank, uh, which was originally a magazine called uh, Vault Fast. And I produced a document for them. I, I produced a white paper suggesting how cannabis could be sold on the internet. And the guys behind this think tank are very active and very diverse activists. And they ran this campaign. I didn't really know about it until the kind of second to last minute. Knew about it, realised what had been achieved and just like any other journalist, called them up and said, can I, can I come and meet? And I did a short film and I wrote a piece for The Guardian, which, yeah, I was, I was really pleased to be able to do that. Charlotte impressed me hugely as, as a, as a campaigner. And she impressed me hugely as a, as, as a woman, as an individual. And the guys behind that campaign are incredible activists. They, <laughs> they got, they got cannabis legalized for medicinal purposes in Britain. However, you know, however they do it and whatever else. I'm, I'm not really that interested, to be honest. They just did it, and that's yeah. good enough for me. Yeah. So it was, yeah, effective and and new uh, and radical. I mean, yeah. You know, the, the drug activism field very often can be it can be something of a talking shop, you know, and you can preach to the choir, and people are just recommending things that people already believe, mm. you know. And really, I think it's like politics, isn't it? To win elections, you have to convince people initially don't agree with you and to change minds it's the, the the art of persuasion is to bring people on a journey with you and to do that i think you need to, to to reach out to everybody and you need to incorporate all viewpoints and acknowledge that some people are scared of cannabis and are scared of legalization and are scared even of cannabis as a medicine mm. and so you have to acknowledge those fears and not dismiss them and not certainly not deride them or judge them bring them in completely it's exactly what we were talking about earlier and um it's that balance and acknowledgement of the issues and not trying to kind of hide them or pretend they're not there. And in fact, the United Patients Alliance, I think they were born out of activism for, for cannabis in general, as yeah. in recreational, and actually decided that the effective way to kind of lead to, to that is to sort of split out the medical side of things yeah, and, and start with that because it's a much more convincing argument. I think, totally. So medical cannabis has always been the kind of the bellwether for, for recreational cannabis legalization. And I think that people who fear recreational cannabis legalization they they look at the at the medicinal legalization industry and they they see it as a kind of machiavellian thing and i think they're wrong i think they're wrong to do that and i think they need to go and talk to some people who use it as a medicine to understand how wrong they are 
money is money, capital is capital. There will always be crossovers and money involved and people making money. That's just the way it is. To me, the bottom line is it's a useful medicine and it should be uh, available on the NHS. Yeah. On the NHS, simple as that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, look, a, a big signifier of it is when Daily Mail starts to be more warm to the idea of CBD and medicinal mm-hmm. cannabis, which which I think has definitely happened in the last... They're still petrified of recreational, obviously, mm-hmm. but that kind of starts to make it more accepting. Have you found that you've got more work available to you, to be candid? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I've never got enough work. Um, <laughs> do anymore uh, yeah it's, you know it's, it's been a busy time for me for me the real tender point wasn't so much the legalization of, of, of medicinal cannabis or even recreational cannabis for me the tender point was the publication of my book uh, drugs 2.0 which documented the emerging digital uh, drug culture and that was really the thing that, that flipped my kind of my, my stock into a higher mm-hmm. value mm-hmm. bracket really but yeah you know it, it's sometimes been a lonely furrow of drugs uh, drugs journalism in the UK and there's not that many of us you know mm-hmm. it's, there's me and Max Daly my editor now at Vice we We've dedicated ourselves to a fairly kind of, I mean, radical is a strange way to use about your own work, but certainly an alternative approach to, to drugs channels. And so just go, look, let's talk about this in terms of harm reduction, in terms of policy change, in terms of unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. Let's look at this as documentarians, as uh, investigative journalists. And we, we've done that. And that's what's led to me to, to, to do the stuff I've done, really. So... Yeah, you know, it's, there is a, the, the, the weather, the weather is with us, the wind is with us right now. Yeah. And we're, you know, we're, we're sailing along nicely. Yeah. Sailing along very nicely. It's been a fun few years actually yeah. watching, um, watching everyone start to contradict themselves, you know? <laughs> And I suppose, I mean, Vice is a great platform for that, isn't it? They kind of actively seek those mm. diff- alternative perspectives. So there's no, there's no wonder you're, um, you're writing with those guys, I'm sure. Do you know, I just, there's one thing I wanted to say, which I just think it's amazing how creative people can be when you're not locking them up. Yeah. You know, if you lock them up, they're not going to be creative. Yeah. If you accept that they have, that they have a different view to you on cannabis and that society has a wider view on cannabis, look at the flourishing of, of cannabis culture in Canada and in the US. It's a, it's a huge industry. Yeah. There's so much money to be made. Mm. There's so much creativity and so much, just everything from technological advances to biological advances. The fact that you have like autoflowering cannabis now, you can get two crops a year growing outdoors in the UK. Yeah. If you buy, feminized autoflowering cannabis plants from Dutch seed banks, you can grow in the United Kingdom cannabis in your garden in this terrible weather with a small greenhouse very easily. Everybody listening to this for £10, you can be self-sufficient in cannabis for a year. There is no need to buy cannabis. It's a weed that grows freely and it's it's a fun hobby. I should say that we don't endorse any illegal activities. It's all at your own oh, risk. <laughs> ne- neither do I, but simply the information is offered um, without without comments. Of course, of course. Really interesting. I mean, look, there's a much bigger field as well beyond the remit of the show where which touch on your wider work, I'm sure, of the, the changing attitude towards hallucinogenics and psychedelic drugs in relation to mental health. But, you know, I think that, as you say, the whole agenda is changing and actually realising maybe we can use these things that we've sort of been forbidden or have the, the government has told us have been forbidden um, in different ways. So, you know, we kind of touched on this. How, how important do you think the press is in tri- driving this change? And I guess what further change would you like to see? The changes that I'd like to see would be a wholesale dismantling in the United Kingdom of the Misuse of Drugs Act, complete dismantling of it. And I would like to see a regulated and controlled market in all intoxicating substances, along with a public health campaign to actually reduce use 
and to help people avoid use. And I think that the two drugs we should start with for that would, after cannabis, be psychedelic mushrooms and also MDMA. I think that the fact that these drugs are being used now in therapy and they have passed you know, human safety checks and medical checks in the US in terms of the, the FDA's recent approval of MDMA as a, an excellent treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder and psilocybin in the Salodep uh, study in London. And I think that if you look at that as a cure in many cases for depression, likewise with ketamine, it can cure depression mm. in some people more effectively than SSRIs. I think that there's, there's great work to do in those fields. I think if you look at the damage that alcohol does to our society, if you look at the cost of it, and if you look at the media narratives around it, and if you look at the kind of the jokey, complicit, drinking mums kind of vibe and wine o'clock bullshit, mm. you know, this like this kind of complicit, tacit approval of alcohol over every other substance, it's kind of unjustifiable to me. You know, I drink myself and I enjoy it. But I look at reporting on alcohol in the newspapers and I look at advertising of alcohol in the newspapers and I think if drugs were advertised in this way, if cannabis were advertised in this way, MDMA was kind of giggled about in this way, it's it just it, it would be unthinkable. I mean, you know, bank holiday newspapers, I, I when I'm in The Guardian, when I'm doing um, editing shifts in The Guardian, I look at every newspaper every day. You open the sun when it's bank holiday weekend and every every single supermarket's got an advertisement for like one litre of vodka, 15 pounds. It's like, is the entire point of a bank holiday just to drink all weekend? You know? There's it's, something inherently British about it, that's for sure. There's definitely something <laughs> in there. But yeah, what do we need to do next one? Let me, let me stop around. Well, I mean, so in, from a media perspective, what do you, what do you think? I think... Uh, a great thing to, to have in the media would just to be, to, to, to approach drugs with something less, something of a less cliche, a less hackneyed mm. kind of spirit and approach. I, I tweeted the other day that if, if in any story anyone is involved with the synthesis or extraction of any drug in any way, invoke Walter White from Breaking Bad. That's <laughs> all that. I mean, that story was about a Japanese professor making MDMA in a lab, not about a guy making crystal meth. <laughs> it's like, in his garage. In his garage. It's just the illiteracy of drug journalism um, in the UK is it's, it's appalling. People don't have the first clue what they're writing about in most cases. So I think really some education on the part of most journalists towards the you know towards the, the, the nature of drugs and drug abuse. Mm. But I think as well, I think that what we need is the normalisation of drug abuse and, and harm reduction. I mean, I, I love work by organisations such as the Loop, who've completely normalised the fact that drug testing at festivals it's a really effective way to stop people taking dangerous drugs, mm. you know? I think if we have, as we do, a market which is controlled by gangsters, then we need the public sector between the public user, between the end user and the gangsters. We need to have some kind of some mm. kind of safety barrier in there. Nobody drives a car without a seatbelt on. Nobody goes rock climbing without uh, without a mobile phone, yeah. you know? It's like, if people are going to make risky choices, like driving a car or climbing a rock face, then we need to protect them from some of the consequences of their actions, mm. either by having emergency services to collect them when they fall, or firemen to cut them out of the car when they crash if they drive too fast. Mm. And I see this normalisation uh, narrative that's actually being pushed by wonderful people such as The Loop and other harm reduction uh, organisations internationally. That's an interim development that I think is really positive. In terms of media, news just likes novelty and horror and incident and, you know, the internet kind of encourages that. So I don't know if the media is the answer, really. I think really the answer is public activism. And I think if you look at any change, it's through campaigning. The, the people who've made the changes in things like gay marriage or if people have made the changes in medicinal cannabis or any other piece of progressive social policy, it's only ever been fought and won by activists, by direct activists, by people saying... This is what we want, and we are many, and you are few. And that's the way that things change. It's through concerted direct action, generally. I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, the Extinction Rebellion crew, they might dance really, really badly, <laughs> really badly, but 
man, they're out there, they're doing something, they're trying to change something. They're not just sitting on Twitter cussing people out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's the way you do it. You get on the streets and you do something. No, very uh, wise words and a, a positive message. And actually, I, I mean, I, more the mainstream media might be kind of zoning on, on sensationalism, but hopefully platforms like Vice are more likely to take a brave move and cover these things from a, a different angle. And, and, and obviously their constituency is the younger demographic. So hopefully that will lead to change in, in, in voting, etc. Okay, cool. So we're getting towards the end. Uh, my traditional last question, and I'm not sure how relevant it is, because you've been doing this for a lot longer, but but how did your family, parents react when you first started writing about drugs? The first kind of times I started writing about drugs would be when I was working in I was working in Panama, um, Panama City. I was working as a, a correspondent for the Reuters news agency at the time. I remember there'd just been a huge bust of cocaine. It was like six tons of cocaine or something like this, like a, a vast bust. And I, I called my boss up and I said, "Look, there's been a there's been a bust. It's been six tons of cocaine." He went, Six tons, we're not going to cover that, it's too small. And he said, unless it's in the president's car, check whose car it's in. <laughs> I was like, well, it's in a truck, it's six tons, you know? And then after that, I started writing about, about cocaine in, in, in Panama and Colombia. There was a story I did about uh, the Kuna Indians and, and these guys were kind of, the Colombian sort of narco traffickers were speeding along the Panamanian coast across this kind of idyllic island environment. And the traditional, you know, the indigenous people that lived there, they were finding 40, 40 kilo bales of cocaine washing up on, on the beach. And I saw them carry 13 off a canoe. So they had 250 <laughs> kilos of cocaine that they carried off a canoe into a small hut, like literally a thatched hut. And I was down there doing a story on albino shaman, you know, it was yeah, like, yeah, this yeah. is the kind of thing that I was doing. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'll cover this cocaine story. And then, you know, they just, my parents, first of all, were worried I was safe because I was, you know, yeah. walking in on a quarter ton cocaine deal. But it was all, it was all, you know, fairly legit. And I got the story out and it was following on from that, that I, after returning to the UK, that I, um, I just, I just carried on following the story really. And I did pieces for, for Drug Link magazine, which was a specialist magazine about cocaine eradication, manual cocaine eradication. I went to like coca farms with the Colombian army and the United Nations. And yeah, they were sort of pulling up coca plants and cocaine yeah. plantations. And it was amazing to see. It was a bit sketchy. I shouldn't really have done it from perfectly honest. It was a bit, a bit moody, but you know, got the story, got away with it, got out safe. And then I've just always been interested in adventure of some kind and in Latin America, there was, uh, you know, there was a huge uh, opportunity for for just kind of for hijinks to go and do this kind of thing, you know. <laughs> so I did, and then carried on in Britain, and then through that met just met some some amazing people, you know. Because drugs are countercultural, you meet really interesting people that live outside the law and that think outside the box, and they're really creative, incredibly entrepreneurial yeah. people. Some of them, yeah. And I think it's definitely a, a theme that I want to highlight is the amount of snide or sniffy remarks you get when uh, talking about cannabis and uh, reducing it to stoners eating crisps and stuff. I really want to change that because, as you say, when you scratch the surface, there's a huge amount of people now emerging and working in this new industry, really talented people, very smart. And it isn't this cliche that, that the poor journalists like portray. It's uh, far more interesting than that. And I think this is where the US is so far ahead of us. I mean, if you look at a site like Leafly, the cannabis reviewing mm -hmm. site, yeah, mm -hmm. if you look at that, the branding on it, it's like, it looks like a, a bottle of eco-friendly sort of toilet cleaner, you know, it looks like e-cover, doesn't it? It's really clean and bright and fresh and friendly and really cool. In the US, Whoopi Goldberg is selling cannabis infused sex lube. Yeah. She's selling lube, man. Whoopi Goldberg selling cannabis lube. That, that to me is, that, that to me is the pinnacle of cannabis culture. <laughs> What a fantastic way to end the show. <laughs>
<laughs> cool. Well, with that, I will say thank you, Mike. It's been really great to hear really expert opinion on what's going on in the UK. And um, I'd love to have you back on the show at some point when we can hopefully talk about the next big announcement that comes out. Yeah, man, it's a pleasure. Nice cool. Thanks nice very much. Cheers. <laughs> what a way to end the show, eh? I guess the less said about that, the better. But just goes to show you that there is some wonderful and weird new products coming out from this new industry. Thanks for joining me for that show. I hope you enjoyed it. Mike and I got on very well. Clearly, he's a very good guy. But it was a really fascinating topic in general. I just think the media portrayal of not just cannabis, but of everything is, is a very interesting angle to cover. And I'd love to do more shows in this area, actually. So if there are any journalists out there or anyone in that sort of space who would be up for chatting just drop me a line as ever if you're enjoying the show please do subscribe to it and share and like and all that sort of thing not quite sure what the show is going to be next week actually i'm, I'm kind of i'm in and about a couple of episodes i've recorded so um, that might be a bit of a surprise but yeah have a great week and um and i'll catch you on the next episode mm-hmm.